Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we meet a BC woman who joined up with a friend to take part in an all-woman 10-day rally race driving across the Sahara Desert in Morocco, all of it for a good cause. She'll share the highs and lows of that wild adventure. Pets can be a real contentious part of any breakup or divorce, and there's little legal guidance to help those making the decisions. Well, BC has become the first jurisdiction in Canada to introduce amendments to the Family Law Act to bring some new rules around pet custody. Wrestling fan or not, you've probably heard the name Vince McMahon at some point, the man who built so-called sports entertainment into a major league success story. We meet the author of a new biography of the 77-year-old called Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America, which tackles a lot more than just wrestling and features some real Canadian content. But first, we speak to the lawyer representing most of the families of the 22 people killed in Nova Scotia in April of 2020 in the worst mass shooting in this country's history and ask about their expectations as the Mass Casualty Commission of Inquiry into what happened and how to prevent it in the future gets set to release its final report on Thursday. going to begin tonight in Nova Scotia because a much anticipated final report will be released tomorrow. It has been nearly three years now since the worst mass shooting in modern Canadian history. It's a day I think many of us remember well watching it begin, trying to figure out what had happened. We know now know over a 13-hour span in April of 2020, a 51-year-old man dressed in an RCMP uniform, driving a replica RCMP vehicle, shot and killed 22 people in Nova Scotia. It all began in the town of Porta Peak on April 18th of that year and ended when the gunman was killed by police 100 kilometers away in the town of Enfield. The why will likely never be known, but tomorrow, as I mentioned, the Mass Casualty Commission, the inquiry into what happened and how to prevent it in the future, will deliver its final report in Truro, Nova Scotia. We already know it's seven volumes, 3,000 pages. It is one of the biggest and most expensive inquiries in Canadian history. It marks the end of two and a half years of work, including public hearings, 230 witnesses. It all began back in February of 2022, at least the public hearings. Uh, There's also lots of documents, lots of exhibits, 240 interviews, including with 79 members of the RCMP. It examines some very very serious questions that were raised about the RCMP's response, actions long before and in the aftermath of the mass murders, including why it took so long for an alert to an unknowing public to be released about the gunman on the loose, failures to capture the gunman during the course of those horrific 13 hours, all of which may have saved innocent lives. Scott McLeod is the brother of Sean McLeod, one of the 22 who was killed in that rampage. I would love to know, love to see them have figured out more about what happened in my family situation. We've been hurt. We've had the, the, the hurt of all the hurt because we've lost somebody. So many questions still remain unanswered, but the hope again is that with the recommendations and what's included in that very big report, there are some answers in there for the families of the 22 victims. Joining me now is Michael Scott. He's a partner with Patterson Law in Nova Scotia and the lawyer representing the majority of those families. Thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. So this is a lot of anticipation. I think we have a fair idea of what we may see tomorrow, but what will you and the families be looking for specifically? There's two big areas that we'll be keeping an eye open for. One is a full accounting of what exactly happened 
So obviously, we, we're not expecting any new evidence to come out. But because of the volume of evidence that was presented throughout the commission, um, how the commissioners choose to treat that and what factual conclusions they come to uh, will certainly be important. And then obviously, the second priority item is to see what the, the commissioner's recommendations are and whether we think they will help prevent situations like this in the future. Because on the RCMP side, there's a lot to unpack, right? There is the day of and opportunities missed, uh, warnings not put out. And then there's everything that happened before the warnings missed, the opportunities missed to identify the threat that the gunman may have posed. Well, I'd go a step further. I'd suggest that actually it's critical to look at the opportunities that were missed in the years before the mass casualty right. as a discrete issue and, and things that could have been identified or followed up on or addressed to mitigate the opportunity for the perpetrator to commit his crimes. Then obviously there are some very specific failures within the RCMP response to the mass casualty. And then, of course, there's the distinct issue of concerns about um, the handling of the matter in the days and months that followed. Right. So so there's a lot there. I mean, I know there was a ton of evidence in this uh, and, and a lot of documents and a lot of witnesses in this inquiry. And it's just a question really of, of parsing it all down into into what the commission thinks. There, there was some, I mean, during the commission itself, the families weren't entirely satisfied with everything that was presented in terms of how much of the truth we would actually get to. No, there's certainly criticisms of the um of the process itself. And we, we hope that the commission reflects on that and perhaps addresses it in their report, because we certainly don't want to see those sorts of issues in future public inquiries. But yes, there was, a, I mean, a lot of information, a lot of witnesses and a lot to unpack, but all the more reason to ensure that we were focused on the issues that matter, the, the priority issues uh, in this public inquiry. And part of their concern was that we we certainly got a bit far afield throughout the commission's process, and that may have limited our opportunity to hear from some other witnesses that we should have heard from or to explore issues that bore more directly on what happened here in Nova Scotia. Right. The decision makers from that day, in other words, people who are directly making decisions that day and earlier and after. Sure. I mean, the people that were on the ground, the people Mm -hmm. that that have firsthand knowledge. We heard a lot of round tables and experts and panels for the purposes of of this public inquiry, there is no better evidence than uh, than hearing from the people that were actually there and learning from their experience. There, there were also gaps pointed out that didn't have that weren't entirely the RCMP. There was a coordination issue clearly between uh, the Canada Border Services Agency and the RCMP. There was there were ability there were things that slipped through the cracks that that go beyond uh, the policing of this uh, on the ground, at least uh, in Nova Scotia. Well, there's definitely. Uh, an important aspect to be to be addressed in terms of interoperability. So the interaction between the RCMP and municipal police forces, the interaction between H Division, Nova Scotia RCMP and, and national headquarters, border services is obviously a, a critically important issue because it bears directly on the perpetrator's ability to access firearms. But yeah, I, I would agree entirely that there's a, a lot to be identified and, and built on in terms of how these agencies and and institutions interact with each other to assure that they're not missing important information because they're silent. Yeah, I I mean, you you know a lot of what, I mean, obviously, you know a lot of what was said during the months and months of this inquiry, what was seen. Do you think enough was done to be able to piece together why the threat wasn't recognized until it was too late? I think we do have a good understanding of some of the systemic failures that resulted in in red flags not being noticed, in opportunities to stop the perpetrator having been missed. What's critically important uh, at this stage is that the commissioners focus on that issue, lay out those 
failures so that we can identify them and, and push for changes that would prevent those sorts of failures from, from happening in the future. Because obviously it's, it's important to identify them, but it doesn't mean a whole lot unless we use them as an opportunity to ensure that we don't have those failures again. Michael, I mean, the, the families, this must have been a very difficult time for them because you know what they want to see they don't want to, they're not going to want to see much soft peddling in here. And we know that inquiries can often, the final reports can often be hard, very, very nuanced and very long. And I, I imagine they're really hoping to see some, some cold, hard facts and some real tough recommendations out of this tomorrow. Well, I, I don't know about tough, but they certainly want, you know, what, what they want is not unreasonable and it's not terribly difficult to provide, which is they simply want candor and truth. There's no question that the scope of the inquiry and the subject matter is complicated and at times subtle, and there aren't easy answers for a lot of these questions. You know, we have to give some credit to the fact that these are pretty savvy people following this matter from day one, and they're extremely well informed about the subject matter. What they will have trouble with if, if it becomes an issue is a refusal to have, have the courage to identify the problem and speak it plainly. Any attempt to to sort of gloss over it or minimize it or politic issues, um, that I can would expect they would not receive well, because it's certainly their view, and it's not an unreasonable one, that the issues here are important enough that they require clarity and transparency and a willingness to identify the issues for what they are, uh, without judgment or blame, but to identify the issues so that we can have a, an informed conversation about how to make positive changes. Yeah. And, and so listeners, remember, this inquiry was not was never about assessing blame, right? This was really about looking at what happened and recommending how to make sure it doesn't happen again. No, and, and that's certainly been a, a point of contention be- between us and the commission. I mean, mm-hmm. they've certainly said over and over again that a public inquiry isn't about assigning blame, which is true. That is That is true. But there's a difference between that and refusing to identify issues and apply a certain level of accountability. That is entirely within the scope of a public inquiry. Uh, We shouldn't shy away from that because it's impossible to address issues and make meaningful recommendations for change if we can't honestly identify a failing as a failing. So, for example, the ready alert issue, unless we can all look at that and plainly concede that 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 was a mistake on the part of the RCMP. It was a failure on, on the part of the RCMP. Right. This was the failure to warn the, pop, the populace that this, that this was happening until far after it had begun. Right. And, and that's not an issue of trying to assign a blame or, or liability or anything like that. It's simply a matter of how, how can we make positive change unless we can all agree that that was a failing and we don't want to see that again. We know from the hearings, I believe, that at least as far as we can tell, the RCMP actually haven't made that many changes since this all happened. I mean, they're either waiting for the recommendations or within the organization, they're finding it tough to try to figure out what it is. There's, I mean, you would have thought there'd be changes by now, to be frank. Well, that, I mean, this came up during the public proceedings when uh, former Commissioner Lucky was testifying. And there seems to be, at least our understanding from our evidence, was a suggestion that once the inquiry was called, to some extent, you know, the RCMP took a more passive role in waiting to see what the recommendations would be from the commission. And obviously that's problematic because that wasn't expected to to come to a conclusion until several years later. I think in fairness, I think the commissioner did say that items that they identified as being immediate public safety issues, they tried to to proactively look at, notwithstanding the fact that the, the commission was going on. But I don't know if we got a, a, a clear idea of exactly what those measures were. Speaking of the of now the now former commissioner, I mean, so many of the people who were involved in the decision making before, during, and after are gone. 
they're retired or they've been reassigned. Is that a cause for concern? Well, it, it's a it's a really important systemic issue. One of the things that Commissioner Lucky said at the end of her uh, her evidence is Commissioner McDonald sort of implored her to take the recommendations of the commission, take them serious, and advocate for them at the the governmental level. And and she suggested that she would do that and she would take responsibility for it. And then, of course, she she retired several weeks before the report comes out. And we've seen that time and time again, and it creates a, a significant problem for accountability or, or any assurance of institutional change because, you know, the, the parties keep changing. So it's difficult to hold them to account when the people involved uh, either retire or are promoted. Right. And, and these are the same people, of course, who would recognize in seeing the report would recognize where the problems were made too, or where the problems existed before I would reckon, recognize the systemic issues that would have led to them. I mean, an inquiry will never restore the confidence of families who've been through something as horrific as this fully. But are you confident that it might go a little way in at least assuring them that this was not all for naught? You know, the inquiry itself will have been worth their time and their pain and their effort. I think we're confident that there will be recommendations made by the commissioners that are important and deserve to be championed and, and deserve to be advocated for. You know, our, our concern will be that the family's ability to do that work, to push for those changes and, and advocate for those uh, recommendations have been made more difficult as a result of the commission's process. There are some issues with the integrity of the procedures that were used. Um, and to the extent that that undermines the process as a whole, it makes it that much more difficult for us then to take the recommendations that come out and then, you know, spend the next several years lobbying, you know, government and other stakeholders to ensure that those are implemented. We certainly hope for the best. We, we try to keep an open mind. And that's why, you know, we try not to, to prejudge the, uh, you know, the, the commission's report before having a chance to go through it in detail. But regardless of what's in that report, we are already aware of procedural issues and, and different things that made this commission unique. You know, our concern is that that it undermines the impact that we can have. And that's something that we, you know, we warned the commission about all the way through proceedings, in fact, before public proceedings ever started. So it doesn't uh, remove the value, but it certainly makes our work more difficult. This was mainly about the officers who were testifying and those who didn't, or those who were allowed to testify in circumstances that were different than we may be used to. That was certainly a, uh, a significant issue, not providing a, a reasonable opportunity for witnesses to be questioned or questioned properly. But it's not the only issue. We had ongoing issues, and I expect that the commission would acknowledge there were ongoing issues with disclosure, late disclosure, incomplete disclosure, a failure of planning and organization. I mean, it, we saw you know a letter going up from the, the premier of Nova Scotia you know, the day before public proceedings started. I mean, that's before we even started, there were significant concerns about the commission's process. So yes, witnesses were certainly uh, a particularly troubling issue. There were a number of deviations from normal procedure in this particular commission that we think uh, was not for the better. Well, Michael, thank you so much. We'll be watching tomorrow to see what exactly uh, the commission has come up with. Look forward to it. 
Uh, if you grew up when I did in the 80s, it was hard to escape the allure of professional wrestling. I mean, it really knew sort of its glory days. I mean, it, it probably did better in the 90s and the early knots as a business. But as a thing, it really exploded with the World Wrestling Federation, people like Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant and all those people in the 80s. And the man behind it all was a guy from North Carolina called Vince McMahon. Now, if you're a wrestling fan, the name needs no introduction, and you don't need to be reminded of the voice that rose to dominate professional wrestling right across North America for decades, first as the World Wrestling Federation, as I mentioned, then something called World Wrestling Entertainment. This is the house. This is Madison Square Garden, the house the World Wrestling Federation helped build. In which a house in which we all have had so many memorable WWF moments. Yeah, he's talking about Madison Square Garden in New York, where a lot of those glory days began back in the 80s. Um, you know, pro wrestling has always walked a bit of that fine line between theater and sport, fantasy and reality. Um, for a long time, no one talked about it. Clearly, there was this sort of fourth wall <laughs> that, the, that, was, that was in place, kayfabe, they called it, where you didn't talk about, uh, you know, you didn't talk about the fact that, that it was not, that it was athletically true, but that it was in many ways theater, right? Um, and also, it was split up into all kinds of different little regions around North America. Different people had their little areas. We know if you grew up in Canada, you would have known some of them. I grew up in Montreal. We had our own Montreal wrestling thing. Obviously, Calgary had Stu Hart and the and uh, the Hart found all the Hart children who went on to become very famous professional wrestlers themselves. Uh, but Vince McMahon kind of brought that all together and turned it into one giant big thing that we all came to recognize as the professional wrestling of the 80s, 90s, knots, and beyond. Now, there have been scandals and so on. We won't talk about those, those as much now because this is really about a new book that came out yesterday called Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. Now, it is apparently the most authoritative look yet at the life and times of the 77-year-old McMahon. But what's really interesting about it is it not only looks at him and his upbringing and how he came to be who he was, but also in the way that he built the empire, the way that he became both ringmaster and CEO, the way that in many ways, not only did it have a real impact on American culture, perhaps more than we give credit for, but also impacted other things going forward beyond. And part of it is politics, how we saw the sort of the the whole idea of what is truth and what is reality or what is truth and what is fiction start to melt. And part of that, according to my next guest, is down to something that was very successful that Vince McMahon in some ways didn't invent, but certainly in some senses pioneered. Abraham Josephine Reisman is the author of Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America. Thanks for your time and congratulations on the book release. Thank you. It came out yesterday, but right. now here we are. It's flooding the zone. Tell me a bit about the choice of subject matter, because I think a lot of people, even if they don't follow wrestling, know who Vince McMahon is. Uh, tell me about your interest in, in him and, and just also why he, he, it's more than just wrestling here. Sure. Yeah, I was a big wrestling head when I was about 13 to 16, which is not that long in adult years, but in teenager years, your 13 to 16 gap is basically, you know, three centuries. You you experience a lot 
and the things you experience have a big impact on you. So during that formative period, I was very into WWF wrestling, WWF being Vince McMahon's company back then. And it was addictive. I couldn't get enough of it. And Vince McMahon was a major player in the show at that point. In addition to being the person in charge of the company, he was also a performer. And not just a performer, but kind of the villain protagonist for a while of the entire show. Everything revolved around him. So I had a lot of feelings about Vince McMahon, as anyone who was watching back then did. And there were a lot of us. It was a very popular entertainment at the time. But then I stopped watching in 2001 and didn't pick it up for about 20 years. But after I finished my first book, which was a biography of Marvel Comics editor Stan Lee, I was brainstorming ideas for book two. And my spouse and I, the uh, spouse being S.I. Rosenbaum, a terrific editor and journalist, we uh, were brainstorming ideas. And one of us said, what about a biography of Vince McMahon? Now, I don't remember which one of us did. Neither of us can remember who came up with it. But eventually we came back to the idea and went, that was pretty good. I don't think I think that's kind of unexplored territory, at least in terms of, you know, classically trained journalism. So one thing led to another. I, I, I this was a couple of weeks before lockdowns that we had the idea. And then when the pandemic and lockdowns really hit, I kind of let my rage about what was going on fuel this book proposal writing process, sent it off to editors. And it turned out that one of the first editors we sent to a wonderful person at Simon and Schuster had been trying to get a Vince McMahon biography off the ground for a number of years. So it was kismet. And uh, we went from there. Because uh, for, for all his, for all his, his sort of public image, Vince McMahon's a pretty private person in terms of at least how much people know about him. And you went back to his to where he grew up. You figured out how he conquered wrestling, at least brought together what had been sort of these disparate or not disparate, but the almost this cartel of wrestling networks around the country sort of took them all over. Um, there was a lot to learn here about, about him. Yeah, there were a lot of unexplored corners of Vince McMahon's life. And more importantly, corners of his life that we thought as a global community that we had a hold on. And it turns out we were completely misreading what was going on because Vince had mischaracterized it. So, you know, for me, the most important and interesting set of revelations were those about his youth and his family. Vince had very rarely spoken about his youth in North Carolina or his family, be it his mother, his stepfather, or his biological father, biological father being the owner of, of the wrestling company that became WWF. But I found a lot of that stuff. There are still gaps. I wish I had a more comprehensive knowledge of his youth, but I think I stitched together a pretty coherent picture that's based in documentation and interviews. I went down to North Carolina and drove around the back roads to all the small towns and rural areas where Vince was raised, bo uh, born and raised in North Carolina, and learned that he had kind of missed not kind of, it very much mischaracterized his youth. He wanted people to believe in the few interviews he did around the turn of the millennium about his youth, that he had been a juvenile delinquent, basically, that he had been a rough and tumble kid who was constantly getting into fights with everyone from cops to uh, Marines to commandants at military school, and that he was totally unruly, just a badass. Now, what I found out was I talked to his childhood friends. I talked to people who knew him. I talked to family members. He was a quiet, unassuming kid that mostly people liked, you know, 
it's this very paradoxical thing where you'd think the shocking revelations in this book, the most shocking revelations would be all like, oh, Vince is a terrible person in some way you've never thought of. I think the most shocking revelation is that he was actually a pretty nice person up until he got into the wrestling industry and really sort of studied at the foot of his father, who was uh, a man of questionable morals. As you pointed out, and as you said, he was a ruthless guy. I mean, he really changed the way that wrestling worked, turned it into something completely different, made a fortune and ran the place like a monarch, right? Like a like 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 an absolutist monarch. I mean. Once Vince was in control of the World Wrestling Federation, his father's company, in 1983, he decided that he wanted to remake the world in his image. And he just paved over the country and Canada. You know, the U.S. and Canada, within about a decade, were completely dominated by Vince McMahon and one other rival, Ted Turner, with his company, World Championship Wrestling. And then within 20 years, there were no competitors left. You know, by 2003, 20 years into Vince's reign, WCW is gone. The only thing that remains are these like tiny little indie promotions that pose no threat to him. For about 20 years until the advent of this relatively new company, All Elite Wrestling, there really was no competition of any note or size for WWE, which was what the company had been renamed into. It was a remarkable transformation. Very few industries have seen one individual conquer the entire sector. But that's what Vince did with pro wrestling. You know, he really became the singular man around which everything revolved. Even the people who hated him were making things that either imitated him or were in direct opposition to him. So he was still the the center of gravity. Abraham Josephine Reisman is with us this half hour, author of Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America, released yesterday by Simon & Schuster. Uh, It is a look at at the very interesting life of one of America's most prominent entrepreneurs in many ways, or at least most famous entrepreneurs, Vince McMahon. Tell me a bit about the Unmaking of America part, because you start to draw some parallels between his, his ascendancy, his reign, the kind of business person he's been, the kind of stories he weaves for his company. And a much broader issue. <laughs> what what was it? Or what is it? Yeah, so Vince McMahon's journey is what this book really tightly focuses on. But the reason I'm telling that narrative, and I give enough of a framework, I hope that people can pick it up and run with it, is I want people to look with a new lens at the ongoing apocalypse in my home country of the United States of America. Things are very bad here in a lot of ways. And I feel like there are still a lot of people who don't understand how we got here or what tactics are effective or ineffective in combating the forces of chaos and fascism. And this brings us to Vince because I think Vince's journey is a perfect example of the unique way in which fascism came to the United States or was was homegrown in its altered state in the United States. And the big key here is Vince's manipulation and evolution of what is known in wrestling as kayfabe, K-A-Y-F-A-B-E. Kayfabe for a long time, for about a century, from the late 19th century until 1989, was kind of the law of the land for wrestling. And it's a it's a word of unclear linguistic origin. Don't worry about that. But 
it meant the public facing fictions of of pro wrestling. And back then it was pretty simple. The public facing fiction was everything you see in the ring is real. Those two guys really are mad at each other. This guy really is, uh, you know, an Iranian terrorist, you know, and not just some Italian guy who right. is doing the accent, all of that. You know, kayfabe used to be this simple, flat lie. Everything's real here. And whether you believed it or not, it was a relatively simple lie to interact with. You could either believe it or not believe it. And that that was it. Now, what Vince ends up codifying, although he doesn't exactly invent it, but he certainly makes it the law, uh, the new law of the land, is what I I call in the book neo-kayfabe. It's a new term. I invented it. Maybe it'll catch on. Maybe it won't. But Neo Kayfabe is what Vince has executed to get to where he is now. And it's very much what Trump has executed as well. Trump being a longtime friend of Vince McMahon, close friend of Vince McMahon. Yeah. uh, And even longer watcher of McMahon family wrestling. And very briefly, Neo Kayfabe holds that you're telling the audience not that everything here is real. You're actually starting from the assumption, hey, audience, don't worry. Everything here is fake. But there's this thing that might happen tonight that's very real. Or, hey, remember that thing that happened last week? Turns out that there were backstage repercussions for that. So who knows what will happen tonight? So all of a sudden, the glory of the match, or at least the appeal, is about decoding this mix of fact, fiction, lie, truth, and everything in between. And that, that state of confusion of going, I don't know whether this is real or not, is something that really compels people in both politics and in wrestling. I could go on, but I hope I gave no, a little press I, Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think if you watch Donald Trump speak and think of him as, as a wrestling manager, it changes the way you look at him. I have a friend who, who says, you know, the world would be very different if Vince had decided to put Trump on the payroll and have him be a full-time, you know, president of wwf or wwe rather on tv you know trump could have gotten all of the joy that he gets from those rallies and from being adored without having to actually enter politics but alas that is not the timeline we live in no and interestingly enough and canadians will appreciate this uh sort of the beginnings of what you consider to be neo-kayfabe um happened with with perhaps one of the most the most famous canadian wrestler bret hart bret hart i was very Honored to be able to spend about eight hours total over the course of a number of phone conversations um, with Bret Hart. Bret was very generous with his time, told me a lot of stuff he hadn't told anybody before, or at least hadn't elaborated before. And he's a major figure. You know, the book is not exactly just this, but the first half of it or so is largely about Vince's relationship with his father, Vince Sr. And the latter half is largely about Vince's father-son relationship with Brett. Right. Because Brett ended up becoming like a son to Vince in a lot of ways and not necessarily pleasant ways. So without getting into all the details, I think Canadians who are familiar with Brett Hart will find a lot of interesting stuff in here. Everything from how Vince never actually paid Brett's father, the legendary Stu Hart, for buying... Stu's company, Stampede Wrestling, in 1984. And the got away, Vince got away with it because he'd also hired Brett and a bunch of other wrestlers who'd been working with Stu at the WWF. So the mm-hmm. trouble was, 
Stu couldn't sue because Brett and his other former wrestlers that he loved were all employed by Vince and he didn't want him to get fired. So you have everything from that all the way up to the death, the tragic death of another great Canadian wrestler, Brett's little brother, Owen Hart, in 1999. You know, the epilogue, which you can actually read a portion of on at vulture.com right now, has this big section about Brett kind of coming to terms with Vince in the wake of all that Vince had done to him. So I really hope people find the Brett story as interesting and the Brett-Vince relationship as interesting as I did. Well, I think people will find the whole thing interesting, regardless of how big wrestling fans they are. Josie, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on the book. I really appreciate it. You have a wonderful day. Let's talk federal budget now, though, because, of course, the budget comes out. Everyone talks about sort of what's in it. And then really you discover how the budget has landed on the next day when the dust settles. And there was an awful lot of criticism today about just how much spending is going on. The Liberals project spending will reach nearly $491 billion in the coming fiscal year, with the deficit now set to reach $40 billion. Over the next five years, the government will increase spending by nearly $60 billion. And one of the things that really stood out, given the changing economic environment, is they're no longer expecting to be able to balance the books by fiscal 2027-2028. And you know when they said, when they brought that up? They said they would do that last fall. I mean, that is not that long ago, just last fall. The Prime Minister today did point out that Canada has the lowest deficit in the G7 and the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio. We're one of the three largest economies in the world with a AAA credit rating, uh, which means that our plan is responsible. Uh, it also is focused on delivering the health care supports Canadians need, as well as moving forward uh, on the cleaner economy of the future with great jobs for the middle class. So this is the right budget for the time. We remain fiscally responsible, even as we're investing for a better tomorrow. Yeah, that's not how Conservative leader Pierre Polyev sees it. 35-year-olds are living in their parents' basements because they can't afford housing. How will Canadian families carry on their backs an extra $4,200 in government costs when we're already going broke as a country? And Derek Holt, an economist at the Bank of Nova Scotia, said today, quote, big spending, big deficit, big debt, high taxes, high inflation, and bond market challenges are not the path to prosperity. Well, to talk about this and much more, uh, National Post's Tristan Hopper is with us. Tristan, welcome back. Thank you. Oh, thank you. You've been writing about this over the last 24 hours or so, because again, with the, with the budget, everyone sort of tries to figure out what the line items are on day one. On day two, you get the kind of macro picture. The macro picture is that's an awful lot of spending. Yeah, yeah. We, we, I, guess, I guess what strikes me is, it, well, it's not tremendously surprising that, you know, they would just decide, ah, we're just going to, you know, stop pretending we care about fiscal responsibility and just, you know, spend as much as we can. Um what gets me is that you're spending all this money and you're not, it's not entirely sure what you're getting out of it. So it's one thing to say, hey, we're going to run a deficit, but, you know, we're rebuilding all these bridges and, you know, or, hey, the, the Second World War is on. We're going to win this war and that's why we're running up a deficit. So a lot of it is just sort of structural. It's just money that just goes away uh, with nothing to show for it except, you know, more debt that we have to pay at these higher interest rates. And most notably, um, I guess, yeah, you're talking about when the dust settled. So. When I sort of had a chance to look, take a closer look at the budget today, what was most striking um, is it basically ignores the housing crisis. Or, you know, if you looked at this budget, you would assume that Canada did not have a problem with housing affordability at all. Um, and, I mean, there's several polls coming out recently in which people say that's 
sort of our number one problem. Um, I mean, anybody who was sort of born after 1985 um, basically cannot buy a house under any circumstances. Uh, I mean, the price of housing has just detached so dramatically uh, from average incomes. Um, and you're seeing all kinds of knock on effects of this. Uh, you're seeing basically, you know, Toronto, Vancouver, other cities are just becoming unlivable. You know, that's causing um, labor shortages within the healthcare system. There's all these knock on effects. Um, any number of things would be fixed if we had affordable housing. You know, if, if, if you're not paying $3,000 a month uh, for rent um, at, you know, um, an average income. You know, magically, you don't need the government's help to get dental care. It turns out you have some extra money lying around. Um, so yeah. anyway, um, I would say that in the eyes of uh, at least my generation and a growing tranche of Canadians, uh, housing affordability is the number one national crisis facing us. And the signature policy plank in this budget, there's basically no, no money for construction. Um, there's no plans to increase new builds or reduce red tape or tax credits for building materials. No creative solutions like that. Um, they're not opening up new land for housing construction. Here's the signature housing affordability plank in the 2023 budget. Um, there's going to be this tax-free savings account in which you can put aside up to $40,000 tax-free for your down payment. Um, the average yeah. housing cost uh, right now in Canada is north of $600,000. So a 20% down payment on that average house is $135,000. Yeah, I, I mean... It- you mentioned that uh, the producer of this show, Brendan Clark, that's the first thing he noticed. He's in his 20s. First thing he noticed, no housing. I said, well, there's this indigenous housing plank that's in yeah, there. Yeah, it's, how, it, it, it is yeah. robust in indigenous housing, yes. Yeah, but but you're right. I mean, when you look at all the things that that are concerned, and certainly an area where the conservatives are doing well is with younger voters over things like affordability and specifically the housing crisis. So it's odd that it wouldn't land. I mean, I imagine they ran out of money and couldn't spend any more. But still, you would think that would be something they would really focus on. Yeah, and it doesn't even necessarily need to be uh, money. So you know, you mentioned the conservatives when Pierre Polyeva came out with his uh, his housing strategy a couple of weeks ago. Um, nobody really noticed because there's all this other stuff happening in Ottawa, but uh, it's not actually a lot of spending. Uh, Most of it, I I call it the build housing or else strategy, uh, where he basically said, well, we have all this funding heading to municipalities. So basically, I just threaten the municipalities, um, unless you build this amount more housing and, you know, reduce this much red tape, uh, we cut off all the infrastructure funding. Um, So, you know, that's kind of a net zero policy. You don't have to spend extra money to get that. Yeah, I mean, not always easy to to get municipalities to go along, but you're right. I mean, it's certainly at least it's an approach that's I, I different from the one we're seeing. Very easy to threaten. I see the people <laughs> running my municipality. Well, yeah, we live in the same municipality. Speaking yeah. of, I mean, all the different things that that you know, the housing crisis speaks to this as well. We've seen some. You've been talking about this over the last 24 hours. We've seen some really disturbing incidents, both in Toronto and in Vancouver, over the weekend. Two random attack murders. Uh, one of them happened at a Toronto subway station. We're finding out more about the alleged perpetrator in that one. A 16-year-old boy was killed, stabbed to death while sitting on a bench at a subway station in uh, the West End of Toronto in Etobicoke. And then another one in, on Sunday in front of a coffee shop in downtown Vancouver where a man was stabbed to death in front of his uh, wife and infant daughter or infant child, uh, again by a stranger. Here's someone who witnessed that. As I started to go over and see these two men fighting, I noticed some blood and then I noticed a stab to the chest. As the guy who stabbed him went back inside of the Starbucks, everybody started to scream, like, is he going to stab us? 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're finding out a little bit more about that. And, and it, apparently it was it was the fam, the victim, Paul Schmidt, apparently had asked the person not to vape in front of his daughter and it led to this. Now, Tristan, you wrote about this because this is really, I think, where the rubber hits the road when it comes to all the crises that are that are sort of galvanizing together in our urban centers. It's around the random crime issue. And it may not be that we're, you know, cities may not be hellholes, but people certainly aren't feeling as safe as they used to. And that's part of the issue. That's right. Yeah. So the Toronto stabbing, um, <clears throat> um, well, no, actually the Vancouver stabbing. So the issue with the Toronto stabbing is the um, the suspect in that case is like so many of these random murders or police killings or, you know, it, you know things we've seen in the last year. Uh, that was someone who was out uh, on bail. So there's any number of ways that person could have been in jail instead of stabbing a 16 year old. Um, now, this one in Vancouver, that person was not out on bail, but I, that one really got to me because um, it's a situation I've been in, you know, about a dozen times. I've lived in Vancouver. Uh, I've seen it here in Victoria where you're basically out just out with the family. And that's what Paul Schmidt was out. Uh, he was getting drinks uh, with his toddler and his wife who witnessed him murdered basically in front of this, uh, this Starbucks. And you're just out with the family. And then you have someone who is uh, having a psychiatric episode. They're high on drugs. Someone who is just completely erratic and potentially violent is just in your face. And then suddenly you have to deal with it. This is not an uncommon experience in the West Coast. So basically, um, if you go into any city center and this has happened basically 50% of the time, I go into downtown Victoria just with the family, uh, there's going to be an incident like that. Uh, So, yeah, that one particularly got to me because I've been in that situation you know, any number of times, um, I didn't get stabbed in those incidents. Uh, you just sort of keep eyes down and just pray for it to be over and hope that it doesn't turn more violent than this. I mean, just just a, about a year ago, I was leaving a church on Sunday morning uh, just with my – she was then three years old. And someone comes up completely out of their head and just starts getting in my toddler's face. It's threatening to kill her. Like, we got we to gotta kill the three-year-old. She's hearing voices. She's projecting it on the kids. So um, that is – very much uh, the common, you know, normal environment in these cities. And yeah. as you saw in Vancouver, sometimes it gets tragic real fast. Once the process is underway, I can ask our prosecutors, is there a reasonable likelihood of conviction? And is it in the public interest? And I assure you, I have asked them that almost weekly, ever since I got started here. It's unfortunate that I... Uh, I didn't understand the limitations. I thought we probably had the same power of clemency that they did in the U.S. Yeah, that's Alberta's Premier Danielle Smith. Now, that conversation was recorded back in early January, and I think her her uh, her approach, or at least her, her take on prosecuting people for having violated rules during the COVID lockdowns is well known. But this was a gentleman named Arthur Pawlowski, who's a controversial Calgary street pastor, uh, and this was just weeks before his trial in Lethbridge on February 2nd, and he faced charges of criminal mischief and offense under Alberta's Critical Infrastructure Defense Act that was related to last year's Coots Alberta blockade. Now, we're expecting a judge to deliver a verdict on that in early May. But this is the premier of a province talking directly to this person about someone who's about to face justice for something. And whether you agree with the charges or not, uh, that's not a good look. Uh, Tristan Hopper is with us from the National Post. What did you make of, of that? Because, I mean, apparently, I mean, this happened quite a while ago, back in early January. But still, the idea that a that a premier would speak to an, to an individual who has a case coming up uh, and talk about, you know, sort of leaning a bit, leaning, talking to prosecutors about the case a lot is, uh, what did you make of it? 
Uh, yeah, you're not supposed to do that. Um, and uh, I think based on, if you'll notice, there was one thing in that uh, thing where Daniel Smith is saying, I thought we had clemency laws like the U.S. Like, you know, at this point, you're basically just, you know, assuming going off of, you know, L.A. law uh, or law and order uh, for how the legal system works. So it's entirely possible, given, you know, kind of obvious ignorance of the system that, she didn't know that premiers aren't supposed to. I mean, maybe, maybe that's uh, you know a, a good defense. I think that's, that's a, actually for any of the many many scandals happening in Canada right here. I think um, I'm you know completely out of it and I have no idea what I'm doing. And I didn't know this was wrong. I think that's usually a valid defense in most of the most of these cases. Very believable. It's, it seems uh, but to work. Yeah, well. it, it, seems it to reminds work well me of <laughs> it was um, it was an Alberta official or a city of Edmonton official. Oh, they got like a parking ticket and they just called and said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going you know, from my office phone. I just want to discuss this parking ticket. And um, I, I don't know if they got removed from the position or something, but yeah, anything like that. Um, it's just the perception that you're trying to alter the wheels of justice. Those things you're just supposed to, you know, that's lesson one in how to be a premier is you don't do that. It's been interesting to watch uh, Daniel Smith as premier so far because these mistakes keep happening and she keeps having to apologize for them. At the same time, uh, you know, the, the UCP seem to be in relatively good shape going into this election. It's very close. We have an election coming up later in the spring. Uh, but this today really felt like salvo number one in how the NDP is going to approach this election, essentially saying this is a premier who cares about some Albertans a lot more than others. Uh, yeah, yeah, certainly doesn't say. Who, who actually, uh, I, I haven't followed it too closely. We've been had too many scandals to get to this, this other scandal. But who, who recorded it? it? It was recorded. Well, that's a good question because it was posted on YouTube uh, by, I mean, it was seen from uh, Pavlovsky's vantage point. It was him receiving the phone call. Uh-huh. And it sat on his okay. YouTube sat on his YouTube page for a while, although it wasn't easy to find. You would have had, had to know it was there. And then it was, uh, you know, the CBC today released a story on it for which Danielle Smith released a preemptive tweet about how this was all uh, nonsense. And the NDP put it out, of course, because they had, they want an inquiry into this, of course. Uh, they wanted, a, you know, an independent inquiry needed uh, to, you know, that to say or to look into we always want an inquiry that we do we do we love a good inquiry inquiry. you know people killed and uh you know the 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 most extreme we get in our political demands are are an independent inquiry you know i think that's good for us as a people it is Um, is. uh, i I think the the lesson here is also just record everything um i have this you know get the app on your phone that just records all incoming calls um i have it as a journalist you know what Save me a few lawsuits so I can recommend it to anyone. And, you know, every once in a while, a family member dies, and then you've got that call of them asking you to pick up some some milk, and that's the only recording of their voice uh, left around. And sometimes yeah, you have know, a yeah. call and you want to put it on YouTube. I, I, so, uh, yeah, I think we can all take that lesson away from this. Just act yeah, like next yeah. Yeah, just just pretend everything you're doing is being recorded by somebody and will resurface at some point, right? I mean, that's probably, yeah. As long as everyone probably. is recording everyone else, uh, you yeah. know, we might return to some sort of civility in this country. We may. Uh, last one because we're going to talk about this in the next half hour. You have some. You have young kids. Crocs. Love them. Mm. Loathe them. Don't care. Oh, I mean, it's like any other any number of of comfortable things. You know, there's a time and place for Crocs. So I think if there's any sort of you know, community backlash against Crocs. It's that, uh, you know, they, they're for oh, hospital work. Uh, they're for around the house. But 
there's any number of things I love doing at, within my home, um, wearing Crocs, yeah, other things I don't want to get into right now that uh, would be very inappropriate in a public space. Um, yes, so, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think it's that like I, I had a grandfather. Um, he went to the grocery. He was one of those old guys. He would go to the grocery store in a three piece suit. Right. Um, same, so, same here. Yeah. You know, as a sign of respect to others. So Crocs are just the exact opposite of that. <laughs> they are in some way. Tristan, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. What's wrong with Crocs? They're the universal symbol of a man who has given up hope. You might as well put sweatpants on and go to Applebee's for the rest of your life. I will give you that one. I do look ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> That's a movie called The Dictator with Sasha Baron Cohen. And, and the reason I bring this up, of course, is because Crocs is what we're going to be talking about for the next half hour. I noticed a lot of them on people, people wearing them as, as style statements, which was interesting. I mean, I remember that when they first kind of came out and they were mainly kid shoes or people wore them to garden or people wore them around the house. Uh, but they've sort of come back as a fashion statement as well. And it was, it was just an interesting phenomenon. And then I noticed uh, there was an article over the weekend that talked a bit about just how well Crocs have been doing. The stock of the company is up 167% since January 2020. The company's annual sales have increased 200% since 2019. Now, part of that is that they did really well uh, during the height of the pandemic because, of course, if you could just be in the house, they're comfortable shoes to have on, right? Uh, but many other companies like Peloton and so on haven't that did well at the height of the pandemic didn't do so well once it was once things started to clear up and people started to head out again. Not Crocs. People are doing, you know, they're doing really quite exceptionally well. Uh, they're made of something called Crosslight, if I've pronounced that correctly, on the most basic level. That's a proprietary material. And, um, yeah, I mean, they're, I mean, you know what they look like, right? There's those clogs with the holes in the front. They have a little strap on the back. And you see them absolutely everywhere these days. So we wanted to slip into a little bit of the success story to see what's happened. Why have they become so popular? How sustainable is it? And to answer those questions is Matt Powell. He's founder of Spurwink River Retail Consulting Firm in Maine. Matt, thanks for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. This is quite the story in the retail business because I even noticed it. I mean, you just notice it on the streets these days. Crocs are here and then they're doing well. What's going on? Well, you know, it's funny. This brand has been around for a long time and it's gone through really three iterations without actually changing the product. But in this most recent iteration, you've got you've got some really talented footwear people there um, who are keeping the brand fresh, keeping keeping the brand in front of consumers, doing interesting collaborations. But at the end of the day, the shoes are just really easy to wear. They're extremely comfortable. They're easy to take care of. They don't wear out, and they come in a bunch of crazy colors. So you can you can have a lot of fun with this brand, and and the consumer is definitely doing that. Just to put this into context, because I know that within this recent New York Times article that you were interviewed for, a lot of it was placed around the sort of the pandemic darlings, the Pelotons and so on, and how Crocs was one of those, but has held on to that momentum. Just how well are they doing? Yeah, you know, the the brand continues to grow. It's difficult, I think, for any brand that's starting to scale to continue to grow at the high rates that it was previously. We typically see a, a plateauing in a business over a hot brand over time. And I think we're seeing that with Crocs brand right now. But they also just recently bought a brand called Hey Dude that has many of the attributes that Crocs does, easy on, easy off, fun, not expensive. And uh, that brand is absolutely on fire right now. So Crocs 
Inc. is is doing extremely well, but it's more about this new um, acquisition than it is about the legacy brand. Right. So, and, and yet the legacy brand appears to be continuing to do surprisingly well as well. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's funny because you mentioned just when we first started speaking that, that you know, the common reaction for many people certainly is that, wow, they're really ugly. So why are they doing so well? What uh, I mean, I guess it's all in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, well, I, you know, yeah, it is definitely in the eye of the beholder. I, I look, the, the issues are really comfortable. And if you go back and look at many of the categories and products that did well during the pandemic, they were comfortable items, pajamas and sweatpants and hoodies, right. slip-on shoes. The slipper business was very, very good during the entire pandemic. And I think this interest in comfort is comfort, meaning I feel better about myself. I don't feel as scared about the world because I'm comfortable. Um, It's a cocooning, if you will. And I think Crocs embodies a lot of that. But as I said earlier, it's, it's, they're, they're easy to wear. They're, they're not expensive. There's a little whimsy to them. That's just right for the times right now. What's always fascinated me about Crocs too, is how wide a consumer base they have. There aren't many brands of anything that you can see people of all ages in all walks of life wearing. Yeah, it's a, by the way, it's a great kid shoe as well, because little kids can put them on and off themselves. They don't need, they don't need mom or dad to help, help put them on. Again, they are, they're machine washable. You can put them in the, in the dishwasher if you want. And so they're great kid shoes, but look, everybody likes a comfortable shoe. Everybody likes an easy on, easy off. I'm wearing a pair of Birkenstocks uh, uh, chef shoes right now, right. which which meet my meet the same kind of goal. They're, every time I sit down, I can just, just kick them off and, and put my feet up on the ottoman. So it, it's that's very much an important fashion story right now. Uh, easy on, easy off is uh, is is a very desirable attribute. What I've always been surprised about with Crocs, too, and there are other brands, you know, Converse and so on, who seem to make a relatively simple product, but don't be, seem to be able to fend off competition. Something like a Croc, you'd think there'd be lots of pretenders out there jumping into this space as fast as they could. But Crocs, Crocs seems to be able to maintain its supremacy, even with a relatively simple product. Yeah, you know, I think early on, this company was owned by chemists who invented the compound that the shoe's made out of. Uh, you know, I think there were a lot of patents involved in terms of the manufacturing of the shoe and the material itself. And I think that's made it harder for uh, for other people to uh, reinterpret. When you look at what lies ahead, you mentioned it already. Fashion is fickle. Footwear is fickle. But Croc seems to have maintained a kind of base of, of loyal customers. And it just kind of roller coasters a bit based on how popular they are. Yeah, you know, early on, the, the owners, they are, one of the iterations of owners that Crocs has had over the years said, you know, we're too dependent on the basic clog. We need to make all these other shoes and and, and uh, wean ourselves off the dependency on the clog. The problem is the clog is the shoe that everybody loves. And so they've, they've re-embraced that program. They brought back this uh, accessories line called Gibbets. You can customize the shoes with uh, your favorite sports team or your favorite logo or hearts and unicorns corns, whatever you want to put on the shoe. And that's made the shoe even more accessible and fun. I think uh, people can talk about their Crocs with other people now and explain what, what the emblems are that they put on their shoes. So I think they've just done a masterful job of, uh, of extending the, uh, this brand. And then it's, uh, celebrity collaborations have also really given them some credibility and, and having celebrities make their own shoes. And those are never commercial numbers of shoes, but they, they get a ton of mentions on social media. And that means a lot today. Yeah, I see third parties selling sort of rare pairs of Crocs these days. And I swear back in the, you know, 20 years ago when kids were wearing them at the beach, I never thought that would happen. 
No, no. Well, the world's different today. We have we have the availability of all these resale platforms uh, who are authenticating the product and making the transaction safe and easy. Um, and that's really created the whole cottage industry of uh, of trading and reselling shoes now. When you look when you look at uh, at, at Crocs, I mean, a part of it has to be price point too. I mean, here we are in these very inflationary times, and Crocs allows people to have a selection of things without spending too much money. Exactly. You know, let's say you have, want to have a Halloween costume and you're going to go as a ladybug and you want to have some red shoes to go with it. Well, you don't want to go out and spend $125 on a pair of red shoes that you're going to wear once for Halloween. But you, would you spend 30, 40, 50 bucks on a pair of Crocs? Absolutely. So they, because it's an affordable price, people are buying fun colors that they might not normally buy. They're buying a second style. There's also a minor trend here of people wearing one color on one foot and one different color right. on the other foot. That's added to uh, that's added to the fun as well. Yeah, well, we used to do that with Converse All Stars back in the '80s, but that that's I'm dating myself. I'm dating myself. And you mentioned too that so I mean, social media has been a big part of this. Sometimes for people like myself who are a bit older, it's hard to see where trends suddenly emerge from, and then you realize a lot of it's due to not only the company's ability to market itself on social media, but how well they manage to penetrate into those sharings. You know, how much people are talking about them. Absolutely. Uh, you know, they they really nurture these uh, so-called influencers. And I, I really question how deep their reach is, but they certainly are getting the product out uh, in, in the in the conversation. Uh, if they feel that there's a, a, a social media personality that is going to get them extra exposure, they may be giving them shoes. They may be encouraging them to tell a particular story with those shoes. By the way, it's really inexpensive compared to, say, running a Super Bowl ad. Uh, I, I think it's a great way for people to get exposure with uh, without having to put up a lot of money. So uh, love them or love them or loathe them, I guess Crocs are here to stay, at least for now. That sure, sure feels that way. <laughs> well, Matt Powell, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. We're talking Crocs this half hour, uh, not the animal, the shoe. They become very popular. Their sales were up uh, something like 200%, or at least the company's sales were up 200% between 2019 and now. They've become one of those. They were a big success story during the height of the pandemic, as many of us were at home and wanted to put wear something comfy on our feet. And they've continued uh, as uh, restrictions have been loosened and people are back out because, uh, well, they're, they're trendy these days. Uh, they come in all kinds of different colors and so on. So we figured out, uh, we were asking a bit about why this, the company's managed to maintain its success, considering how many pretenders there must be out there trying to uh, take some of that market from them. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for it. They've just done a good job. They're effective on social media. Uh, they're, they appeal to a wide range of people. They're not that expensive, considering they're a name brand. But one thing that always comes up when you look into it, and I was sort of interested in this because I'd seen a lot more people wearing them of late just out on the street, like, you know, kids mainly, but people of all ages kind of wearing them as as regular everyday footwear. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I wonder, I wonder why that is. I wonder why the success, why they've surged in sales so much. But one thing you always find when you look into it is the big question – are they good or bad for your feet? So we thought we would settle that issue once and for all. Dr. Jenny Ling is a podiatrist and she's based in Vancouver. Dr. Ling, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, this this comes up a lot and I, I only know this because in in sort of doing research on the, on the surge and the, the, the resurgence of the popularity of Crocs, there are a number of articles out there about whether or not they're good for your feet. And I guess that therein lies the question. What do you think? This is something you know well. 
Yes, I do know it well. And I do recommend Crocs sometimes, depending on the patient. I think that they offer a pretty good, decent amount of shock absorption. I think that's probably their number one benefit. As far as whether or not it's uh, a supportive footwear, maybe not so much in terms of uh, support if you needed um, arch support or something like that. But it does offer a decent amount of uh, shock absorption. And when I recommend it is is for um, patients who maybe require orthotics to control their foot and to uh, alleviate foot pain, they want an option for inside the house. That's when I would uh, recommend that they uh, may not necessarily be able to use your orthotics inside the house, but at least having that shock absorption can alleviate some of the foot pain. Right. So, so better than, say, your average slipper and so on. And also no laces, nothing to untie. You can just kick them on and off, right? That's, that's, that's a benefit. Yeah. You know, it's also great for summertime, you know, if you're going to the beach or uh, working in a garden, it's, it's great for that. I don't have anything bad to say about Crocs. No, exactly. But, but now if you look at some of this stuff, I mean, some of it is, is based on sort of arch support, heel support, um, wearing them to do uh, activities, wearing them a lot outside to walk. Are there any concerns there at all? Well, I wouldn't use it for say a hike or something. I wouldn't recommend that you know if you're doing any kind of extended activity or exercising then certainly not i not uh, it doesn't offer you enough support in that sense yeah, I, I guess and, and also just i mean they're really popular with kids and i think i remember f- first seeing them with kids because they're so convenient they can kick them on off you can wash them but again there were some warnings out there about just depending on what kind of activities your kids are doing maybe again that stability issue comes into play a bit I remember a story when the the Crocs first came out about how for children, especially that they needed to be especially careful when they were going on escalators because they were get caught in the escalators, uh, which is dangerous. Um, But in terms of stability, again, not to be used when kids are running around or um, doing anything too intensive or high speed if concerned about tripping. It's for things like the beach or the pool where you just need something protective on your feet, it would not be good for anything that requires any kind of running. And yeah, you know, they're fun to wear. They have a lot of different colors and the kids can put those little charms in there. But um, for running, a good pair of running shoes. Is a better idea. I mean, we're heading into the summer, right? So everyone's always looking to think, what are we? Gonna, what am I going to wear? <laughs> uh, and I gather with Crocs, they're kind of you should kind of treat them like flip flops, sort of. I mean, there's more shock absorption there, uh, but a little bit like the flip flop in terms of just how um, how much how much protection they give your foot. Yes, um, yeah, I would agree with that. It, it's it's much better than just a flat uh, flip flop, but right. it's it was really meant to be a supportive shoe and if you treat it as that and it's just one of the shoes that you may be putting your kids in for the summer for convenience and that's fine but for any kind of sporting activities it's best to have a um a supportive shoe we are heading into summer are there any other alternatives out there that you point people towards that are you know simply you know similarly convenient to the croc but maybe a little more 
uh, appropriate for for more walking and more moving around. I saw someone wearing Birkenstocks today. Of course, those are much more expensive, but they do look like they're stable. Birkenstocks um, in general will offer a little bit more um, arch support. The Birks also have a similar line where they have that injection molded material. Of course, as well. yes. So I would say the best way to tell is just to try it on and um, see which one feels better. The convenience of having the material, being able to hose it off and not be too concerned about messing it up, if you will, or dirtying it is is great for parents. Um, but another alternative, and if you're looking for sandals that is more supportive, would be something that the sports sandals that have um, the straps. Right, the Velcro, um, right. Yeah, the Velcro straps, so so they're not uh, likely to fly off your feet. It is difficult to find sports sandals that have arch support. That's I have looked, and it's really hard to find anything that has some kind of arch support. So this is a trade-off overall, then, between your arch and heel support and and any kind of shoe that's that that's that convenient. Yeah, that is the trade-off. I, I think there's more available for adults, but for children, it's it's really hard to find. So, I mean, in, in a nutshell, then, if the, the 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 initial question was good or bad for your feet, I guess the the answer is it kind of depends. But overall, uh, just use them wisely. Yes, use them wisely. Um, they're just meant to be a fun shoe. If you're just a, a shoe that gives you some protection from the ground, hard ground, and or any sharp objects that might be on on the floor, it's not really meant to be a therapeutic shoe or um, something that um, will offer support. Like I said, I, I do recommend them sometimes for patients for indoor wear if they're looking for something. Right. Something better than nothing. Dr. Ling, thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, this is a, this next story is a really interesting one because it happened out here in BC, but it really applies right across the board. Pets can be a very contentious issue in any breakup, right? But how judges deal with those disputes here in BC could soon change. Um, it's a change from how animals have traditionally been considered in divorce proceedings right across the country, where they really have been explicitly treated, explicitly treated rather, as any other type of property. So earlier this week, Attorney General Nikki Sharma introduced some amendments to the province's Family Law Act, changing the guidance given to judges on what to consider in determining custody of pets, including each person's ability and willingness to care for a pet, the relationship a child has with the animal, and the risk of family violence or threat of cruelty. And we know that uh, pets across um, the province are really loved members of the family. And so the, the amendments make it easier for people to come up with their own agreements when it comes to how to divide the family pet time with the family pet, or if they can't, to get an order from a judge to say who's, um, who gets custody of the family pet. We needed to kind of step in to help not only give some guidance, but also give a provincial court uh, judge the authority if it's needed to treat a pet not just like any other property, right? Like to actually consider what would be needed in the best interest of the pet and the family in, in, in that context. That's BC Attorney General Nikki Sharma a little earlier this week. And of course, it makes complete sense. I mean, there's been a spike, at least in the publicity around battles uh, over animal custody in recent years. And judges apparently have some limited guidance on how to deal with them. These can be very emotional debates. And as a result, different judges and have taken different approaches in a variety of these cases. So how will these changes work? 
Will we see them elsewhere? Rebecca Brader is an animal rights lawyer, and she joins me now. Rebecca, thank you so much. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. So yes, I mean, this is the legislation. It is. I mean, it's one of those things that when you think about it, you think, well, why didn't they do this? I mean, clearly, clearly pets can be a huge, a huge issue in any breakup, right? Any, whether it be just, you know, yeah. So why is it, how how much of an issue has it been over time without this guidance out there? there, It's been a huge issue. And I mean, pet custody cases in my own practice have really gone up in the last couple of years. I don't know exactly why that is. My best guess, it's probably a combination of COVID and people separating and also people are having fewer kids. So pets are their family. They're turning to companion animals instead of having kids, which is totally fine. And they treat their their pets like family, as they should. And so over the years, I know when I litigate these cases, I always argue for the best interest of the animal. And and I've had some really good judges who have agreed with me and this is in british columbia mm-hmm. and which is a bit unique to and different compared to other provinces across the country because usually the way these cases are dealt with it's it's not only in the divorce context it could just be a couple separates they weren't married but they lived together um right. for less than two years so they're not common law or if they did live together for more than two years and were married they're just fighting over the animal and so we could deal with these issues in small claims court, it doesn't necessarily have to go in the Supreme Court. But that was always also kind of gray. Like, do we have to go to the Supreme Court or not? I normally take them in small claims. But in any event, the point is, is the way that that these cases are usually litigated and resolved in court is that some judges look at just the black and white type of things that you can prove, like who paid for the animal, who registered the animal with the city, who paid for the veterinary expenses. So things that you could prove in black and white. But I'm like... And this is how I always argue my my cases is that, yes, we know that animals are property, that technically, technically, Mm -hmm. as much as none of us, those who love animals, we don't like thinking of animals like a chair. Right. But that's how the, the law looks at it. But in addition to that, I always argue how we have to be treating animals differently than the chair that you're sitting on or the computer that you're looking at or the car that you drive. And judges have agreed with me, but it's still not every judge. Like it, it, I've I've had good success in my cases, but not every judge feels like that. And there's other case, there are other cases where judges don't look at the best interests of the animal; they only look at black and white things. So it is gray, and and there was lots of uncertainty. So what with these changes coming in British Columbia, what you played the clip of. I made submissions to the government. Just, I mean, my my experience in this, so I, I just know how these things go, and right. and I've been really just as an animal rights person too, of wearing my animal rights hat. I made submissions to government with things that I would love, like a wish list that I would love to see, and everything you heard Nikki Sharma say was literally in my submissions and in that, that was order. your wish list. So, that was your yes. wish list. Oh, yes. good. And so, good. so I don't know. Devil will be in the details, as they say. We haven't seen the draft uh, legislation yet. That It hasn't passed yet. But the fact that the government even included some of these recommendations that that I made, and it's not just like one page. It was like nine pages. It's wow. just, you have no idea. Yes, <laughs> I mean, you, you certainly, my... yes, 
you know this well. I mean, this is clearly close to your heart. How does it work now when it comes to things like shared, you know, shared custody or visiting yeah. and things like that? Because I can yeah. imagine all of that comes up uh, when there's a breakup and both parties uh, are very attached to the pet, which yeah. which often happens. Yeah, that yeah, and that's that's the other area that there's a lot of uncertainty in in the law. So when I say law, I mean both technically legislation and and case law because that's how it works in Canada. We yeah, go jurisprudence, by we look right. at, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So we look at what the legislation says in black and white and then we also look at case law, but the problem is that we don't have legislation dealing with specifically with how to deal with pets. So we have to make analogies and okay, well, pets are considered property and so now what? And so we kind of make arguments and and then we have case law about that. But and so when it comes to shared custody, uh, there has been a lot of uncertainty whether the court even has the power, the jurisdiction to make an order with shared custody. So I've been able to do that in a couple of cases where judges have agreed with me that, oh, yeah, you know what, under the small claims context, I actually do have the power to do that. But a lot of judges don't realize that they do. And I guess it depends on the argument that it's made and how it's framed and all that. But now with this legislation coming in, it's we'll see how it'll work. But the legislation that's coming in or that's expected to come in, it's under it's specifically under the family law legislation, not small claims legislation. And part of my wish list, which I don't know is going to be in there, (laughs) is to provide guidance um, on where people could bring these lawsuits if they can't settle. I would ideally like for people to have the option of either going to the Supreme Court or going to small claims. I've been dealing with these matters in small claims, and I just think it's way more efficient. There are few, fewer procedural things you have to do, so it tends yeah. to be less expensive and faster. But then there are some times when it will need to be, be under the Supreme Court jurisdiction if there are other issues at play, like the division of assets within the family home and the car and trust issues, you know, like money left for family members, and then what happens to the animal. So it's, I'm, I'm yeah, really hoping I, that they'll I be guidance. I can imagine it, it's been it's been complicated. It's it struck me that I, I, I'm, I was wondering first of all if there are other parts of the world where this is done differently, where there yeah. is where it is in fact codified, and why it took us so long. Because when you explain it the way you explain it, it seems like well, why, this would have been easy to fix a long time ago. But I guess the surge in cases as part of it. Who knows? I mean, I think the reality is when you look at, or at least when I look at the bigger picture, I see even just in my own practice, looking at the development of the law from when when I, some of the cases, like just even in the past decade, you could see an evolution of judges grappling with this idea how animals are property, but they want to treat them as more than that. And there are more cases coming to court dealing with animals, whether it's in the pet custody context or wildlife context or cruelty context, you know, whatever it is, there are more cases going before the court that deal with animals. And that signals that people care about animals and there needs to be an evolution in the way we treat animals under the law, because the law takes a long time to catch up with societal expectations and societal values. And so I think that's part of the reason why it's taken a long time, just because the law is very slow. Yeah, and, indeed. But, yeah. Yeah, let me. You know what? I'll we'll take. I'll, I'll ask you about where it's been done before because I was curious to know that because every time we talk about sort of amendments to codes, you know that it's been done somewhere else, right? So I was wondering what the experience would be. Rebecca, we left off by talking about does this happen elsewhere? Does it work elsewhere? I guess, and and does it? 
Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, I'm not a family law lawyer. Oh, not a family animal rights lawyer. Animal law. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Okay, clear that all up. All <laughs> perfect. Animal law. Yes, gotcha. For, um, okay, yeah. So anyway, so in other jurisdictions, well, no other place in Canada. So we would definitely be the first one to actually codify it in legislation, like you say. And um, there may be some regulations elsewhere in provinces, but that's not the same as, as actual legislation, which is the governing the, the governing piece of law. And so we, we definitely would be the first in Canada. But elsewhere, you look at just our neighbors to the south, the United States. Uh, there's Alaska. Well, okay, sorry, I guess it's north of us. But just north of us, United, yes. But yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> there's Alaska, Illinois, California. Um, there's New Hampshire, New York, Maine. I don't, those are just a few kind of from top right, of mind. So, so quite a few. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely at least several of them in the United States. And and it's it's worked. It hasn't, you know, some people, one of the things that I hear is that, oh, come on, really? You're going to spend court time and and debates in Parliament over legislation like this? They're just animals. Well, when I'm <laughs> someone not when you're that there. To me, yeah. No, yes. absolutely not. Yeah. No, I mean, just really think about it. And it, for a lot of people with I'm going to use a dog as an example, some people and I would say many would feel that they love their dog more than some of their own human family members. And, and because they just, they relate to their dog. They just love it. Who's the happiest? I don't, have you, do you have a dog? I don't have a dog now, but I have had a dog in the past. And I know what it's like. Losing a dog at a breakup would be very tough for people. Yes, be, I mean, absolutely. not only are you dealing with a breakup, but you also have the loss of the pet, right? And that, that I think would be really tough if there was no rules around well, yes, and just think of, remember when, when you had a dog, who was really at that time in your life, if you really had to pick the, the, the being, the live being who was the happiest to see you when you walked through the door, was it the people you lived with? No, it was probably yes. your dog who greeted if, if you, you no matter what. Way. If you put it that way, absolutely, absolutely. And so this is, do you think other Canadian jurisdictions will, I mean, normally when one province passes something, other jurisdictions keep an eye on it to see how it's working. I do, and I really do. And I think I'm actually quite proud of BC. Again, maybe I don't want to jinx it (laughs) because nothing has passed yet. No, it feels close, though. It feels close. It it does. It does. It still has to go through the legislative process, and there has to be... Uh, some debate on it and all that and pass through 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 our legislature but in bc but but absolutely i have i could probably bet anything that at least one other province in canada is going to do the same thing over the next five years and it only makes sense because pet custody disputes are only on the rise again i think it's because people are having fewer kids and now also a mix of covid and people splitting up but looking at it from, from bigger picture and statistically, there's a recent poll that came out in 2020 in Canada, and over 50% of Canadian households have at least one dog or one cat. Right, that's, of course. That's a lot of companion animals, and that will inevitably also mean, unfortunately, disputes over who right. gets them. And, and, just for, and uh, you asked about the sharing, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah and, and, I, 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 I was going to say, just from uh, just quickly what um 
when, when you when you look at the circumstances, I would imagine that even within the process, this will make it more efficient, which saves time in the long mm-hmm. run, right? If the rules are in place, that makes the whole process faster. So not only does it help people solve issues around pets and, and breakups, but it also makes the whole court system quicker, too, because there are rules in place. Right. I hope so. I mean, that would definitely be my hope. But the reality is, is leave it to lawyers and to legal system to say, yeah, it says this, but what does it really mean? (laughs) True enough. True enough. We'll have a Supreme Court case before, a Canadian Supreme Court case before long about all this. Uh, Rebecca Brader, congratulations on on seeing so much of the work that you put into this, um, at least make it into those amendments. And I guess we'll keep watch to see when it be when it starts making its way through the legislative process yay i really hope so i'm really excited about this well most of us were navigating kind of the end of winter back earlier this month uh a whole bunch of teams 190 in all but two women from bc took part in a very very grueling and interesting drive across the Sahara Desert. It's called the Rale Aisha des Gazelles du Maroc, which is uh, it's an all-woman rally race across some pretty beautiful, stunning, really. I was watching some of the videos earlier, just breathtaking, but pretty inhospitable territory uh, in Morocco, the Sahara Desert, of course. Um, so the pair from BC abandoned the rain and snow of here for the heat and sand of the Sahara, all of it for a good cause. They called themselves the Northern Rally Cats, consisting of navigator uh, uh, Jessa Arcuri and driver Myra Van Otterloo. And Myra joins me now. Myra, welcome back uh, to Canada. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. You know, I was watching, I didn't know of this one. I mean, we've seen other rally races that take place in the desert. This is a really interesting one. It's, uh, it's 10 days, but, but wow, what, did it, what an adventure. What made you decide to, uh, to sign up? Yeah, this, uh, I found out about this rally back in 2020. Uh, I was working in the Middle East, and I, I happened to find it in a magazine. And it's not featured out west here too often it's definitely featured in canada out in the quebec area but it wasn't right. it wasn't featured out here in the in the west coast and so when i saw it and did a little research i was definitely intrigued by it and said oh i really want to do this so yeah, yeah. I, I imagine it's a french language thing right it happens in morocco i saw a lot of coverage in france and and i guess it hasn't really broken that barrier too much i guess a lot of the teams are french or or moroccan as well um so how i mean tell me how it all works how how do you train how do you how do you get over there what happened well uh for us uh we were in contact with the organization and we worked through all the steps getting getting our vehicle. We ended up leasing a vehicle from Morocco um, from a company that really, uh, that leased to all the Canadian teams, actually. And um, from there, we, we moved through um, a navigational course that the, the organization puts through. Um, unfortunately, Jessica couldn't attend that one in Montreal. I attended it in Montreal, and okay. she attended it actually in Morocco um, the day before the race. And oh, wow. then. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah. it was a it was a quick turnaround for Jessa. <laughs> yes, no kidding. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, and then, so so yeah, because she, she navigated and you drove. Just so listeners know, yeah, yeah, and uh, and then in regards to training uh, for driving in the sands, we kind of winged it. Um, <laughs> the 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 organization gives you a training day two days before the race, and so that's something that all the Canadians went through. Um, and so we all participated in this one-day training uh, um, 
it was, it was sort of a mini rally and training set up in another section of the dunes, of the sand dunes. And uh, that gave us our sand experience for the first time. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So what's it like? I mean, it must be so different from anything you've been in before. What were you driving? So we drove a 2015 Toyota Hilux. Um, right. And I am so in love with this pickup truck. <laughs> it was fantastic. Um, and I have to say, it's probably one of the most grueling, um, exciting, frustrating, um, emotional roller coaster of, a, of an event that I've ever been on. Yeah, I was watching some videos from the past and from this year, too, of teams. I mean, you see people in tears, cars stuck. I mean, all kinds of... Tell me a bit about... So you're out there, and I mean, I've been in the desert a little bit, but I mean, it's just such a, a different atmosphere, if you've never been, than anything else you'll ever see. It is spectacular uh, and terrifying all at once. Exactly. You know, the dunes, the sand dunes, when you're in them... Um, they can be uh, approximately like two to three um, power poles high if I was to reference wow. something in size. So some can be quite enormous. And then you've got the smaller ones that are about the size of a truck or, or of a, a motorhome or something. Um, but, yeah, it's beautiful country. The sand is incredible. The, the temperatures and the heat from the sand, you know, it's, it's it's something that you, you can't explain it unless you're in it. But then there's the other side of it of, um, you know, quite uh, arid and dry old riverbeds that used to be there thousands of years ago. And then you get into some palm tree areas and, and some lush little green shrubbery. And then you get into some light sand that's not even at all the same sand as the sand dunes. It's more of a clay that houses camel grass and these big rooted plants that just love to get your truck stuck. So, <laughs> yeah. so what was it like? So it's 10 days. That's a, you know, that's a long time to be, to it's, be doing that. What was it like? I mean, what was the toughest part of it all? It's very exhausting. You start your day at 5am and oh, wow. you don't, you don't get back to bed until about 11 o'clock at night and you're on a time restraint. You know, you, the morning is very set up by the organization um, and then you, you, you're focused the whole time throughout the day, uh, nonstop until you cross that finish line at the end of the day, um, for that leg. And then it's, you have one hour after finishing to get everything completed for the day that without getting penalties, and then you eat, you sleep and you go to bed and, and it's, it's exhausting. Um, but it's amazing all, all at the same time. It's, it really is. And it, you never would want anything longer than those 10 days because by the last day, you're just, your body has given up. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 I can't say enough about how much you go through a, all the different emotions throughout it. Yeah. I mean, I, I know people who will argue on the, way, on the way to the grocery store in the car. How did you and Jessica get along through the navigating of all this over those 10 tough days? Oh, we laughed. We I cannot tell you how often we laughed. It was it was great. We have a 26 year um, friendship that dates right. back to our years in university, and everybody was very concerned about our relationship going into this. They're like, "Are you doing, how are you going to protect it?" But it it worked out great. We laughed. We had a great time, and I think I think that is what um, helped us succeed as well as we did was that relationship because. We've just known each other for so long. We knew how to 
support each other. And, and if one was up, the other was down. We could support each other in a way and communicate in a way that a lot of other teams who were new to each other didn't have that experience. Yeah, I imagine it puts any relationship to the test. What were the, what were the high points? Like what were said? There must have been moments where you just sort of stopped and looked around and thought, well, maybe you didn't stop at all, but there must have been some real highlights in there too. Oh, yes. There was, I had a, a, a driving experience where there was this dune that was probably the highest dune and the steepest dune I'd ever seen. And uh, the leader at the time, she was the leading uh, team. Um, her and I decided to attempt this. And she kind of talked me into it. I'm not going to lie, because she said, you have the... She told me I had the better, the bigger engine, and I was thinking about, I'm like, I do have the bigger engine in here than her. And uh, she was driving a, a, toy, um, a Piaggio, and right. so she attempted it first with the smaller engine, and she did it. And she was struggled at the top, and I was like, yeah, I've got to do this. And the whole time as I'm just gearing it up, this this sand dune, Jessica is just yelling, go, 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 go. And uh, we got to the top, and I have to say, hitting that top of that sand dune and, and kind of Dukes of Hazard style landing. Um, when we, when we, when we finished that, we got out of the, the truck and we were just high-fiving and we were just so proud of ourselves for getting up that hill of that sand. So yeah, Amazing. that was, and it's, that was yeah. one of my biggest moments. And, it, and I should remind listeners, it's all for a good cause too. This is, there's a good cause behind all of this, which is one of the reasons it's, it's so talked about. Yes. You know, the, the, the organization provides uh, medical care to all the local areas. As we are racing, these doctors, there's about, I believe there's 25 of them. I, I stand corrected at any time, but it's, I believe it's 25. And these doctors come and they, they're uh, medical doctors and they have orthopedic surgeons. They've got optometrists. And their focus this year was children. And uh, they worked on many, I believe it was, they helped 400 or 400, I believe is the number. But I know that they performed 14 major surgeries while they were out there for the locals. Right. Because this is really remote, a remote part of the world, southern Morocco. Oh, yes. It's totally a third world country in, in these areas where we were. Um, water is scarce. Food is scarce. Housing, um, we are the organization is very focused on environmentally friendly uh, practices. And with that, um, we all had to drink from one liter water bottles. And what they do with those one liter water bottles is they fill them up with sand and create homes with them. Um, wow. The walls, the structure of the homes. So everything is, is, is there to help these people who, who need it. Now, I, I cheated a little bit because I was going to ask you this anyway, but I went and looked at the results. And if, if I'm not mistaken, there were 190 teams that went in. And I think, if I'm not wrong, you finished 11th, which is spectacular, by the way. Yeah, we were pretty excited about that. Um, I definitely have a bit of a competitive streak in me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I think that that was cleared for the, with the sand dune one, but for sure. Yeah, 11th. <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so we were very proud of it, and we were really proud because we were the top Canadian team, and oh, first far. ever from British yeah. Columbia. So that was that was something we were super proud of. And in the novice section, we came seventh. So we were it was an achievement that we're really proud of. Yeah, and around you, I think it was all French teams. I think the winners were Moroccan, but yeah, that was. I mean, you were by far when you look for the Canadian flags, you're way way up there above everybody yeah. else. So, so that was great. I mean, the obvious question is, do you do it again? Maybe not next year. <laughs> um, no. 
I would love to do it again. I would need full sponsorship um, for it, just because you do you do take a financial hit every time you bang up your trucks. So, you know, if I got full uh, sponsorship, I would do it over again in a heartbeat. Yeah, and then you took some time off right before you. So, so, so now that you're back, um, a last thought about the whole experience. Um, just very proud of of doing this with my best friend. Um, doing as well as we did and not destroying the truck or hurting us in any way that we, that we came out of it and are proud of our, of how we did. That's, that's what I take away from it. And you came out of it as friends, which people have been concerned about as well. I mean, uh, stronger than ever, basically. Yeah. Our bond is, is that much more. And, you know, this, the part of this was, it's about empowering women and, the two of us came out of it, and our confidence has definitely, um, definitely increased for sure. Have you been eyeing any obstacles in and around where you live now to see if there's a, another sand dune out there for you? You're going to put that put that to rest for a while. Well, it's quite funny because I look at things now and I'm like, oh, I can get over that. Oh, <laughs> and I, I never thought of that before. <laughs> You're hooked. <laughs> I'm uh, hooked. Well, well, congratulations to the Northern Rally Cats on your 11th place finish out of 190 teams. And of course, uh, Jess isn't here, but congratulations to her as well. Myra, thank you so much. No problem. Have a great night, Ben.